the heart of New York City, near Washington Square. In 1911, March winds were cold and bare. A fire broke out in a building ten stories high. And 146 young girls in those flames did die. This is something that really touches my heart. These women, these sisters before me who were working and were not given the safety and the protection that they should have been. And that's something that really hit me very, very close to my heart. Many years ago, I stood on a street corner in New York City's Greenwich Village. According to my research, this was the site of the infamous 1911 Triangle Shirtways factory fire the deadliest industrial disaster in the history of the city and one of the deadliest in U.S. history. 146 garment workers died that day, mostly young immigrant women. The fire led to legislation requiring improved factory safety standards and helped spur the growth of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, which fought for better working conditions for sweatshop workers. So, I'd expected to find a memorial, perhaps a statue of some sort, to mark the spot of this important and tragic place in American labor history. Eventually, craning my neck upward, I finally spotted a small plaque about 15 feet above me on the building's wall. So I was thrilled to hear that last week in New York City, the Triangle Fire Memorial was unveiled and dedicated rising nine stories high, the memorial was installed on that very building which housed the Triangle Shirtways factory at the corner of Green Street and Washington Place in Greenwich Village. Two days later, a one-act play, Triangle, Scenes from a Prosecution, opened in New York City. It dramatizes the criminal trial of the owners of the Triangle Shirtways factory, who, spoiler alert, were found not guilty. On today's show, Elise Bryant and I talk with Jesse Waldinger, who wrote the play, producer Ronnie Marmo, and Lauren Winnenberg, who directed. You'll also hear audio clips from the play, which closes next weekend. Details for tickets are at laborheritage.org. Click on calendar. And on Labor History in 2. The year was 1983. That was the day that musician Merle Travis died. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. On the top floor of that building, ten stories in the air, these young girls were working in an old sweatshop there. They were sewing shirtwaists for a very low wage. So tired and pale and worn out, they were at a tender age. Let's begin today's show with the poem of the Triangle Fire, read here by Labor's troubadour, Joe Glazer. In 1911, we come to one of the great, great tragedies, March 25th, 1911, on a Saturday afternoon. They work in a half day, closing at four o'clock. That's a half day in their sweatshops there. And it was a beautiful day down there in lower Manhattan. And the Triangle Waste Company, which was in this building on the top floors, 
Building is still standing, by the way. Building didn't burn. People burned, and the stuff in it burned. 146 young girls, mostly Jewish girls, were burned to death or jumped out of the windows to try to get away from the fire. And it, it was something that shook the whole east side, 1911. There was a funeral with tens of thousands of workers, and there were investigations. And what was fascinating is that the Triangle Waste Company, during that 1909 strike, they were one company that beat the union. They beat the strike. They didn't have any union. They closed the doors. And those girls burned to death because of it. Now, our friend Morris Rosenfeld, again, wrote this poem which covered the whole front page of the Daily Forward, the famous Jewish daily paper. Big black trimming right after the strike, right after this tragedy. Sisters mine, oh my sisters, brethren, hear my sorrow. See where the dead are hidden in dark corners, where life is choked from those who labor. Oh, woe is me, and woe is to the world on this Sabbath. When an avalanche of red blood and fire pours forth from the God of gold on high, as now my tears stream forth unceasingly. Over whom shall we weep first? Over the burned ones? Over those beyond recognition? Over those who have been crippled or driven senseless or smashed? I weep for them all. Now let us light the holy candles and mark the sorrow of Jewish masses in darkness and poverty. This is our funeral. These our graves, our children. The beautiful, beautiful flowers destroyed. Our lovely ones burned. Their ashes buried under a mountain of caskets. Morris Rosenfeld. So, Ronnie, if you could just set the stage for us, so to speak, by giving us a brief description of triangle scenes from a prosecution. The Shirtwaist Fire, this horrific event that took place in New York City that changed many of the labor laws. Jesse Walder and I have worked together before. And so I love Jesse's writing. He, he sent me a handful of scripts and I chose this one. I had heard of the story, but sadly, and I didn't know it as well as I should have, quite honestly. And so I quickly educated myself on it. I read the script. I loved it. And I just thought, wow, it was really a hometown story and an important story. And then to come to find out that they were unveiling a memorial for Triangle the same week that was all happenstance. I couldn't believe I was just sharing with a friend that I had chosen this play. And she goes, I'm on the board of the Triangle Coalition. Are you crazy? Do you understand what's happening? And so I was just like, oh, my goodness. So it fell out of the sky. And I thought, boy, that's synergy, serendipitous if, if I've ever seen it. So it's become this beautiful thing. And it was all just started with Jesse's script, of course. If it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. Thank you. I hear you, Ronnie, but ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. Jesse, just remind us, what happened on March 25th, 1911 in New York City? This was an era of industrialization, and there were factories that were built all over the city, and largely for uh, clothing. A shirtwaist is a blouse, and it was like a new type of fashion that women, especially young women, were wearing. And this was a big business. And the Triangle Factory was the biggest of them in, in New York City. And it was uh, a, a typical uh, factory where the last thing they care about, it seems, was the safety of the workers. 
workers were largely young women. They were largely immigrants. Mostly they were Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe, from Russia, for example. Others were Italians, but almost all of them were either first generation or second generation Americans. And they worked in what we would consider very hard conditions. And one of the problems was there was a lot of uh, scraps around that uh, created a fire hazard. And somebody dropped a cigarette into a bunch of scraps and it just spread like wildfire. And the factory was in what is now the Brown Building. It was the Ash Building on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors. And when the fire department was called, their ladders only extended up to the 6th floor. So they could not reach the women who are the girls who were in a panic up there. And one of the issues that was in the prosecution is whether any doors were locked up there, particularly on the ninth floor. And it seems that there were two ways of getting out, and one of those ways seems to have been locked for reasons that they go into in the play. And 146 people were killed. Many of them just couldn't get out and burned to death or asphyxiated to death. Some of them jumped to their deaths because they they couldn't get out any other way, and then they jumped down from the eighth and ninth, well, not the eighth floor, the ninth floor, uh, they jumped down from. Uh, so you have uh, a scene that's probably reproduced in many ways on 9-11 in 2001. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't think any of the girls that jumped from the ninth floor survived. I'm not sure about that, but it, it seems that they uh, did not. They landed on the pavement. Uh, and it was, it roused the city. There had been union uh, problems before in a couple of years earlier. So people were aware of the fact that uh, there were strikes and the strikes had a modicum of success, not much. The main opponents of the strike were the owners of the Triangle Shirtwaists Company. And so the city was up in arms uh, with all of this going on. And so there was pressure on the prosecutor, the district attorney, to do something. Somebody had to be responsible for this. And mm -hmm. so they brought the owners to trial. And that's what the, the play is about. The play is gotcha. largely on trial transcripts. Gentlemen of the jury, the law in this state mandated that all doors leading into or out of a factory shall be kept unlocked during business hours. That law, wisely enacted, was designed to protect the people who worked in those factories. Objection. That is Mike Stewart, reputed to be the foremost trial lawyer in the city, also the most expensive. So I got two questions for you, real quick. So what inspired you to write this play and why did you choose to focus on the trial? I, I'm an attorney, a, a recovering attorney. And <laughs> so I had not known much about Triangle, but I was intrigued by hearing that the uh, defense attorney, Max Stoyer, who was one of the great trial lawyers in New York City at the time, had cross-examined a, uh, a, a, a little girl 
by having her repeat her testimony over and over again, and it was all in the same words. And so the implication was that she had memorized it. The implication also was that somebody else had written it for her. And so her credibility was shattered. And in the Leo Frank trial, they tried the same thing. But I was really intrigued by what Stoyer had done. And in reading and reading all this, I actually find out that, yeah, he was legendary Stoyer. And he and it was famous for having done this to one of the witnesses. And I honestly can't find any evidence that he really did exactly what they say he did. And he goes down in history having been a brilliant lawyer. And I'm not sure if he did it or if it really worked. There were other reasons why the trial came out the way it did. But that's what inspired me to look into the Triangle Fire was just this one little paragraph in Harry Golden's book about the Leo Frank trial. Now, there was something you left out this time, Miss Wiener. When Bernstein was jumping around, do you remember what he looked like? Yes, he looked like a wild cat. Right? You left that out the second Objection. time. Objection. We can all see what you're doing, Mr. Stewart. Objection overruled. You may answer. Well, I, I don't picture whether a wild cat or wild dog. I just speak to get it exact. No one wrote out that story for you, did they? No, no one wrote. You never study those words? No, mister. I'm just telling what happened. That's all. Miss Wiener, when you answered Mr. Stewart's questions, you tried to repeat your testimony in the same way you did here in the court. Is that right? Yes, sir. I tried to get it right. And you remember every detail of that story as if it happened yesterday? Yes, sir. Like yesterday. And it's all true? All true. Yes, sir. Will you please tell us why you tried to use the same language with Mr. Stewart? Because he asked me to tell the very same story. I, I tried to tell the very same thing because he asked me to tell the very same thing. And did you feel like you had to tell it in the same words? No, I didn't think. I, I just tried to tell it the way he asked me to say it. In the same words. Thank you. You may step down. Now, the judge charged that in order to find the owners guilty of criminal negligence, which would have led to a manslaughter charge, the jury was going to have to find that they had actual knowledge that the doors were locked or that the door was locked very hard to prove what they actually knew. And that, I believe, was the turning point of the trial, was that charge. And not all of Stoyer's pyrotechnics and, and his brilliance, but the, the verdict was not guilty. The owners, even though there was a lot of evidence that they had illegally locked a door, that the girls could have escaped through and tried to. And many of them, a couple of dozen, were piled up right outside of the the door to the stairway. In spite of that, the the verdict was not guilty. Lauren, just want to check in with you as directing. Yeah. Director, how's this? How's this project for you? And how is this <laughs> working out in terms of the, your artistic vision and the vision of the play? Absolutely. So this is actually, this has been such a dream for me. I, my background is actually in arts activism. So this has been such an incredible opportunity to tell this story and to also be the first people to tell this particular play and to get to put that on stage. That's been so 
magical for me. Working with the cast, it is a pretty heavy, it's a pretty big cast. I think we've got about 10 people on stage. It's been amazing just getting to work with people and also getting to experience this story as it's happening. Like Ronnie said, we were given this opportunity to work with the coalition, which has been so amazing. There's some incredible people. We've been doing talkbacks with them. So that's been so insightful and getting to have their opinions on their uh, on the play and on the event and the memorial personally I'm a huge history nerd I learned about this in high school I to be fair I did have a history teacher who was from New York City while I was growing up in San Diego so we got a pretty he told us very in depth about the triangle fire so when I got to read this play it was something I I, I recognized pretty immediately and I was super excited to do it's such an important story and as a woman in the workforce this is something that really touches my heart. These women, these sisters before me who were working and were not given the safety and the protection that they should have been. And that's something that really hit me very, very close to my heart. A few days after the fire, I dropped in on a mass meeting at the Metropolitan Opera House. On one hand, workers demanding safety regulations, and on the other, the cream of society donating aid to the victims. It was boisterous and it was chaotic. But the crowd was finally hushed by a harangue from a certain young labour organiser named Rose Snyderman. I would be a traitor to these poor burned bodies if I came here and talked with fellowship to you. Yes, you. You elite. You privileged. You have a couple of dollars for the sorry mothers and brothers and sisters by the way of a charity gift. But every time these workers come out to strike or to protest, the strong hand of the law presses down heavily and beats us back to the conditions that make life so unbearable. That young woman jabbed at the conscience of the powerful, the money class, and the result was a serious movement for safety regulations and the improvement of workers' conditions. So, Ronnie, just this happened 112 years ago. What does this play? have to do with audiences today. What we've done is we've created this little exhibit in our lobby. The coalition shared with us like actual shirt waist, the shirts and all kinds of memorabilia from the building. And we have that all displayed in our lobby because we want people to come and have a full experience. It's like you come and learn about this piece of history. And as a theater person, the idea that we could present something that that means so much and yet people could go home with an education. Mm -hmm. like we do all kinds of shows, but to think that we're sending people home with something that they could hold on to and hopefully support going forward because the Triangle Coalition are, are made up of an incredible group of people and they're so passionate about it. And so I'm getting a lot of great feedback about what's going on over there. And I'm just, I just feel like I'm so blessed to be in a position to choose things that matter. But every once in a while, it's good to do an old fashioned comedy too, just for the heck of it. We need to laugh sometimes. But when something comes along like this and like I said, the, the the memorial being presented two days before we open, it just feels like you know you're doing something right when there's not a lot of roadblocks. In fact, the opposite. It feels like there's this, this gush of energy behind us. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I really think theater has the power to, to move people, to change people, to educate people. Lauren, back to you. You had mentioned this about the Triangle uh, Alliance Co Coalition, rather. Triangle. Mm -hmm. And 
What do you think the play says to the 2023 audience? And what does it talk to you about women yeah. and safety? Go ahead. Absolutely. And beyond just women, something that really spoke to me, I remember when we read this play and why I really wanted to do it because I thought it was important and it's not lost on us. We are all actors and many of us are SAG. And right now we are, we are literally striking for better working conditions and for better pay. It, it broke my heart last year finding out about the woman on set with the Alec Baldwin movie when she died because of poor working conditions that all could have been solved if there there were proper the proper channels were taken to to ensure her safety so that's something we as actors are still dealing with on a regular basis even within the union without the union People are working on sets for long hours, being forced to do things that are maybe not safe and not particularly dignified. And that's something that really touched me because it's something we're fighting for is just dignity and safety. And it's still something that we have to fight for in 2023. And the story about these women, especially the testimonies from the from the women and the reactions from these lawyers saying that they repeated them like parrots. I know a little bit about like trauma and mental illness. And there's so much that you you find out later on. And we found out later in life and something that actually came up, I believe it was during the Judge Kavanaugh case was about how when people who go through trauma, they tend to repeat the same story over and over again as a protection mechanism. So something that was considered uncredible 112 years ago, we are still fighting for that place in the courtroom to say, this actually is something that has medical backing and it, it, it provides more credibility. And it's still something that gets questioned. And of course, just being a woman in America, you're constantly feeling, ah, I know I speak to all three of you as men, but I'm sure you probably feel this as well, Elise. There's always that feeling of you have to fight two times more than all the men in the room to try and get your opinion across. I think that's all, it's all a combination of different things, but that's something that really has sat with me with this play and the desire to get these women's voices out there, even if it is 112 years later. This is not the first time when girls have been burned alive in this city. Every week, I learn of the untimely death of one of my sister workers. Every year, thousands of us are maimed. The lives of men and women are cheap, while property is sacred. There are so many of us on each job that it matters little if 140 yards are burned to death. I can't come and talk good fellowship to you gathered here today. Too much blood has been spilled. But we have tried, you good people of the public, and we indeed find you wanting. Wanting. Jesse, I was going to ask you, did you have actual transcripts from the trial that you were working from? We don't have a full transcript of the whole trial. Mm. Uh, some of this has gotten lost. But the basic answer is yes. Much of what you uh, see in this play is taken uh, word for word from trial transcript. The other thing I'd like to say is not only was Roddy unaware of uh, the coalition that was putting up this monument to the victims of the Triangle Fire, I was unaware of it too. 
So when you talk about, what did you say? It's either odd or it's God? Yeah, we always say that in my house. There's a term in my house. Is it odd or is it God? Who knows how this happened? But the the dedication was literally two days before the opening of this play. Mm -hmm. Now, Lauren, were you at the dedication? I was. It was so incredible. We had a couple of the cast members there, too. We were all in tears. It was so beautiful. And they have been such an amazing partner. They've been sending over people from the coalition. Um, doing. We've been doing a couple of talkbacks. I believe tonight we have one of the great-granddaughters of one of the witnesses coming mm-hmm as a guest and she's going to be part of the talk back katie weiner's daughter right yeah katie katie weiner's i think it's like great granddaughter yeah and she talks to she it's incredible and she her name is suzanne and she came she did this whole speech actually at the at the memorial dedication and she talked about how her mother helped identify helped identify some of the bodies as a child and like she was like four years old identifying or I guess it was like that's what it is it's a uh, Katie Weiner's step our great grand niece because they brought her mother in to identify her sister's body at four years old it was hmm. it yeah and, and um, another, another odd but odd thing is that of all of the witnesses, I, I had to uh, conflate several witnesses together. But one of the key witnesses in the play is Katie Weiner, mm-hmm. the exact person now whose descendant is coming to talk or has come to talk to the audience. We wanted to just follow up with Lauren just to, to describe, because if folks are going to come uh, to see the play, I think it'd also be worth, uh, when, when I've been to New York and have gone to that building, there's just always been a, a small plaque, frankly, fairly high up on the wall that you really had to look for. Can you describe the new memorial for listeners? Absolutely. That was my experience too. Ironically enough, I first found out about the building because I was taking a class in there for grad school at NYU. And I remember being in class and they're like, oh, this is actually the site of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Now let's get on to our lesson today. And it was very crazy. But now what they have updated it with is they have this awning made of iron all around the, it wraps around the building and there are laser cut reversed the names of the victims. Mm -hmm. So that way, when the sun shines down, you can read their names. So it's reversed on the iron, but when the sun comes in their their names are reflected. And then they have at the bottom, they have these black glass panels where the names are reflected. They've got flowers out there for people to lay out. It reminds me a bit of the Vietnam War Memorial, a similar thing, but it's really incredible. The coalition people and the designers were talking about how they were trying to get a design that really brought the eye upwards. So you got to experience the full size of the building and really just kind of think about the fact that these women were on the seventh, eighth, and ninth floor trying to escape. And now you get to see their names up in the air memorialized forever. Mm. Thank you. I've seen photographs of it, but I'm really looking forward to seeing it in real time and real space and the real thing. So we're going to wrap up here, but I, we have a final question for you. And, And Ronnie, you kind of mentioned it earlier. But when I ask you, each of you, 
uh, to, to close the program, to talk about the importance or power of a play, of this play, a play of this nature, uh, as a vehicle for information and education. Ronnie, you want to go first? I would love to. I have seen personally people change their heart, change their mind in the theater. I, we were, I, I did the West Coast premiere of A Time to Kill. You remember that important story? Mm -hmm. I did the West Coast premiere of that show. And I remember some ill-intended people coming to see the show. There was weird things happening outside the theater with certain symbols being spray painted on my wall. And the news came and was like, what do you think? And I said, I really believe theater has the power to move people and to educate people. And if I could just get them to sit down, we could shut the lights in a dark room and let them have their own experience. It's amazing because so many people we're raised a certain way and we have these thoughts and these prejudices and these and all and whatever we're dealing with and they're literally they're passed down to us and in many ways we don't even know why we feel how we feel we just feel that way mm -hmm. and so i've seen it with my i i could give you a hundred examples which i won't do that now but of how the theater has really changed people and, and if i've done nothing more than give you something to think about i appreciate that there's this relationship between the actors and the audience that although you do the same words every night it it can't be recreated. It's like perfect in this moment in time. And the words are the same, but it's different. So Lauren, I'll go to you and then we'll let Jesse close. Absolutely. I believe it's Bertolt Brecht who says that art is not a mirror, but it is a hammer in which to shape our reality. There's something about theater that is just so special about bringing people into a room and having them experience a story together and the fact that never can happen again whenever you go to see a show that's the only time you're going to have that kind of experience with those actors with the people sitting around you it is very communal it's something that we don't really get with film and I believe film has its place but theater it allows people to experience the story and react to it and react to real people on stage thank you sister Jesse well, let's wrap it up theater does has this, uh, this way of changing. And Bertolt Brecht is a perfect example of that, of changing people deliberately. We think about how Larry Kramer wrote this play, The Normal Heart, which awakened people to the AIDS crisis when many people were shutting their eyes to it. And he got people thinking about it. The Triangle Fire itself awakened a lot of people to what the workers were going through. One of the witnesses to the fire, watching people jump to their deaths, was Frances Perkins. Yes. Frances Perkins became the first woman to serve on a cabinet. She was FDR's Secretary of Labor, and she never forgot. She just happened to be across the street when the sirens came. She never forgot what she saw. And she was a, a mover of uh, change so that there were uh, many labor statutes and ordinances that were passed because of what she saw. And one hopes that if somebody sees a play about the same exact thing, it might move them to do something similar. I just want to, again, going back to this incredible Katie Weiner thing, in the play, you will see that they're asking Katie Weiner why she went 
of where she did. She says, I was looking for my sister Rose. And they ask her at the end, did you find her? No. She dead? Yes. That's a very moving thing. And the thought that Katie Weiner's great-grandniece is seeing the play, uh, I find that very moving in itself. And the, the point is, if you can feel moved by what's there on the stage, maybe you can do something to change things. Diversity in the scene, the girls laying on the sidewalk. Which girls? We thought they had fainted. I remember Julia said, said, Kevin, we are like them, we are all right. We did not realize that the girls um, had jumped from the windows and, and were dead. And Julia went over to one of the girls and, and, and she bent over her. Uh, and it was dreadful. What happened? She, she was hit. Who was hit? Uh, Julia. Hit by what? By another body falling from the sky. Was she, uh... she She was killed. I saw it. <clears throat> uh, after that, everything was like in the days. I, I don't know what happened until I woke up in the hospital. What about your sister, Rosie? Did you find her? Rosie, no. No, I never did. Is she dead? Yes, sir. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you, guys. Thank you Thank so much. You. Thank wow. you so much. This was okay. so beautiful. Great. Yeah, it is. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever for the youth. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1983. That was the day that musician Merle Travis died. Known for his unique finger-picking guitar style, Travis wrote songs that captured the hard life of the coal miner. His songs drew from what he had seen growing up in Muhlenberg County, Kentucky. He was born in the town of Rosewood, the son of a coal miner. In 1947, Merle released a four-record set, Folk Songs from the Hills. The album contained the song Dark as a Dungeon, what would become one of his most recognizable songs. Come and listen, you fellers, so young and so fine, and seek not your fortune in the dark, dreary mines. It will form as a habit and seep in your soul till the stream of your blood is as black as the coal. It's dark as a dungeon and damp as the dew. For danger is double and pleasures are few. Another song about the life of a miner was this song titled Nine Pound Hammer. It's a long way to Harlan 
It's a long way to hazard Just to get a little brew Just to get a little brew When I'm long gone Just make my tombstone Out of number nine coal Old number nine coal Perhaps Travis's most famous song was this one, 16 Tons. Now some people say a man's made out of mud, but a poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood, skin and bones, a mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company Like store. what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. On the top floor of that building, ten stories in the air. These young girls were working in an old sweatshop there. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Today's interview originally aired on the Labor Heritage Power Hour, which airs every Thursday at 1 p.m. on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., or you can just search for the Labor Heritage Power Hour wherever you listen to podcasts. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Our music included Ballad of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, sung by Bev Grant, and of course Solidarity Forever and Bread and Roses at the end there, sung by the cast of Triangle Scenes from a Prosecution. Again, details on the last weekend for that show are at laborheritage.org. Click on Calendar. Labor History Today is produced by the Labor Heritage Foundation and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. You can keep up with all the latest labor arts news by subscribing to the free, absolutely free, Labor Heritage Foundation weekly newsletter at laborheritage.org. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history, and see you next time. Girls.